Uh, so good to see all of you today. Um, hey, before we jump into the Word, um, just have a few announcements. If you're a visitor today, uh, welcome. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here. So uh, glad to see all of you. Uh, what a beautiful, what a beautiful day. Uh, and I want to just remind you uh, that today was supposed to be baptisms. And we got a text message from Cameron this morning at the Northeast Building in a video showing water pouring out of the ceiling of, um, from below the baptism. Luckily, we know that the baptismal is held up by, it was engineered and it's held up by steel beams, so no worry there. But, uh, and it, it's not stopping Northeast from having church today, but they had to drain the baptism. I think a pipe probably cracked from the cold weather. Um, so, a bit of a bummer. Um, we're not Church of Christ, so we still believe that you're saved. And, uh, um, and, but we, will, we do believe that baptism is important. And we will get it rescheduled uh, as quickly as we can. So, did we get a date? Not yet. Um, so we'll figure that out. And as soon as, we, uh, as soon as we figure out what's going on with it, we will get that date to you guys. So sorry about that. Um, and sorry for those of you who were signed up to be baptized today. I wanted to let you know that next uh, week is uh, a family meeting that's occurring uh, after our service. And the family meeting really is a, a way for us to kind of um, regroup, uh, kind of take a, take a pause, hear from the elders uh, about where we're at financially as a church, uh, some of the, some of the, the vision shift of, of uh, some things we've been thinking about in terms of, of missions, uh, and, and even really addressing uh, what I shared last Sunday, um, which the elders, we had a meeting, uh, and I'm sorry guys, uh, I was just coming to you as a confessional, like, hey, I want to model for you, like, I think you can get, you deserve more from me, and I've been having a rough time, um, but the elders were like, we didn't know what you were going to say, and we thought, are you, is he going to resign right now? Uh, no, no, that is not the case. And, uh, and I am, I am a, a man who is known to often speak before he thinks, and which is really terrifying when you read scripture that says, and few should teach, for you will be held to a much stricter judgment. So just pray for me in regards to that judgment that is coming. Um, so, uh, but what we do want to talk about, though, is, is just how do we, what is a path forward for Door of Hope? What is the vision for our, our church? We're, we're coming up on 14 years uh, in May of being, a, or it's 14 or 13? 13 years, excuse me, 13 years as a church in, in, in May. And God is, I, I know that he is at work. We're seeing so many new people come, but we also, we have to address the elephant in the room. We also saw a massive exodus like so many churches, like most of the churches in, in the area over the last two years of COVID. Um, and the news is looking good on the, on the front of the, the, the coming, uh, I believe soon, uh, the, the close of a pandemic, but it's going to take us a long time to recover from it as far as emotionally and learning how to be relational again, learning how to be okay with, with hugs. I mean, we're, we're like fearful of each other. We have to learn how to be people again in community, um, in meaningful relationship together. So I just want you guys to know that this is why we're doing this meeting, and, and I really encourage you, if Door of Hope is your home church, um, please, please come next week, because I think it's important 
for us to know as we're going to consider today what it is that we believe, what it is that we're called to, um, because we can't, we can't be the Christians that God has called us to be if we don't even know what that means. Um, and we need to understand what our mission is, unique mission as a church in a city like Portland. So um, with that said, uh, we are going to continue in our series today uh, that is called Through the Looking Glass. And what we're investigating is the paradoxes of following Jesus, uh, the paradoxes that Scripture is riddled with that are often ignored um, when we attempt to kind of create sort of a black and white uh, two-dimensional grid to this thing called life, which is much more nuanced, and this king named Jesus, whose kingdom is actually upside down from the voices and the, the systems that this world continues to establish so fully, uh, not only outside of the church, but within the church as well. And we need to understand how do we make sense of what can feel at times like contradictions when in actuality, what is upside down or through the looking glass is actually the greatest, is the only path forward. And today we're going to consider, uh, last week we considered this, this paradox of Jesus as both, um, as both the source of peace, he's the bread of life, and he says, which one of you will ask, a, uh, if a child asks, would you give him a stone if he, if he asked for bread? But then we Forget that Jesus, who is, is our peace, who is the one who brings respite and provision, is also the very one who said in the exact same sentence in which he said to his disciples, these things I have spoken to you that you may have peace, but in this world you will have tribulation. That Jesus, who is our peace, is also referred to by the apostles as the rock of offense or the stumbling rock. And that stumbling rock is not just, uh, that stumbling stone is not just a stumbling stone to those that are outside of the kingdom of God, but it is a consistent source of stumbling for us as well because we are so used to walking in a world that is squishy, that we're, we're constantly trying to maneuver uh, around this ever-shifting ground that we walk on, and it trips you up to step onto something so solid as Jesus. And that's a reality. And so this strange mixture that the peace that he brings also doesn't come without bringing violence to the soul because the peace of Jesus is also going to be the thing that exposes sin. And the presence of Jesus is going to be the thing that constantly reminds us that his perfection may be our covering, but it doesn't cover us without exposing how much mixture there is in us. And all of these things create what feel like contradictions, but they're actually the sign of God's presence in our lives. When we feel that tension, I don't believe that you can come close to Jesus and not feel at, at once the, the, the miraculous reality of this is the God of the universe who loves me and at the same time undone by the fact that he is the light of the world and I can't come into the light without being exposed. And there's always something to stinking expose. <laughs> it truly is a game, an endless game of whack-a-mole, isn't it? And so today we're going to consider the 
the serpent and the dove. Another strange paradoxical statement of Jesus. Look what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep. And think, of, think in terms of sheep, we are called the, the flock of God. We considered this, the, Jesus's I am statements as the good shepherd. He says, my sheep hear my voice. They know me, they follow me. And as we consider, sheep are not dumb animals, but they are herd animals. <laughs> And they, and they can be stubborn animals and they tend to wander um, and they're not very good at protecting themselves. They don't really have any defense mechanism. So when we think of sheep, we can think of a people that are meant to follow a shepherd because we are dealing primarily with the metaphor of domesticated sheep. Um, and domesticated sheep will imply that there is somewhere a shepherd, whether you see him or not. And Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep so I'm not sending you out as crusaders. <laughs> I'm sending you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. One of the things with wolves is now we're dealing with predators, people that are dangerous, things that threaten the Christian life, voices that come and draw away from the good shepherd that can devour us. And keep in mind that throughout the New Testament, the wolves that are discussed again and again almost always are from within the walls of the church itself. I think that it is so easy for us to think of the enemy of the church as being those outside of our walls when the greatest enemy that we face is almost always from within. Because here's the thing about wolves, is that wolves almost never know that they're wolves. In fact, they often think they're sheep. And the fact is, is the gospel is such good news that we forget that it's even possible for wolves and thieves, which Jesus uses the illustration as the great threat against the sheep, that wolves and thieves actually have the ability to become sheep. The thief on the cross is actually the picture of that Wonderful. He said the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. The thief nailed next to him probably did all three of those things. And yet Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. It is possible for a thief to become a sheep. It is possible for a wolf to become a sheep. But here is the thing. What Jesus is warning is we have to know how to discern these voices, these influences that draw us away from the shepherd because we ourselves might be the one that's potentially becoming a wolf and not knowing it. And we can ask ourselves that question by, the, by are, we, are we as harmless, approachable as a sheep? Nobody's scared of sheep. I'm scared of a lot of animals. I have never come up to a sheep. I'm scared of goats even. They seem, I don't know, they got evil eyes. I don't like them. I don't. And they're always, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have like pretty strong superstitions that our myths come for a reason. So I, I'm not totally convinced the devil doesn't have hooves, hooves and looks like a goat. But the sheep, sheep are so, I, I walk toward sheep. I don't walk toward Rottweilers. Like that's not, so, you know, and I definitely wouldn't walk toward a wolf. I like him on 80s t-shirts, but that's about it, really. Um, so... So this is the, this is the thing, it's, it's something that we are to be worried about, something that we should be watching for, something that we're to protect ourselves from. And again and again, the scripture says, 
Beware of the wolves that come in and they, they bring false doctrine and they, and they feed on the gullible, the naive. And so now Jesus uses two illustrations, two animals, and this is surprising, honestly. Because he says, so be wise as serpents and harmless as doves or innocent as doves. Actually, the word even means um, pure as doves. Have the purity of a, a dove and the, the wisdom of a serpent. Now, we're going to get into a serpent's wisdom and a dove's innocence in just a second. But you can see that there's something that we are supposed to bring together to what seem like opposing ideas. A serpent, which is a predator, dangerous, uh, the primary animal uh, besides the, the mythological animal of the dragon applied to Satan himself. Uh, and, and then the dove, which is always a, a hairbender of, of, of peace or, or tranquility. Um, it, it's the, the animal that is acceptable for sacrifice because of its purity. And I, I think that this is an interesting thing where he puts these two contradictory ideas together and, and I think Paul gets at it for us in Romans 16, verses 17 through 20, and he's clearly hinting at this, at this statement from Jesus. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, wolves. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace, I love it. You want to talk about a contradictory statement? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That is such a violent depiction to follow on the word peace, which shows that Jesus, when he says, I did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword is that life comes through death and the crushing of evil under the feet of Christ himself. And this is also pointing back to Genesis and when the serpent is cursed and told that the seed of the woman, um, that, that the serpent will bite his heel and the, and the seed will crush his head. It's actually portrayed really powerfully in the garden scene in The Passion with Mel Gibson where he finishes praying in the beginning, sweating blood, and he stands up and there's a serpent by his foot and he smashes down on its head with his sandal. And it's, it's, a, it's pointing back to that original uh, declaration at the fall at the beginning. But this is, Jesus says, you and I are to have essentially the cunningness of Satan and the, and the, the purity of a dove or of a saint. And we're, we might be comfortable with the idea of innocence and purity, but none of us want to be that weak. And we're incredibly uncomfortable with being asked to be like, be like an animal that is primarily used to describe evil. But I think that we need to understand what Jesus is helping us to gain wisdom of. Because here's the thing, over the last two years, where isolation has been at an all-time high, along with our screen time, that I, I don't know about you, but I am shocked at my ability to not be as innocent as a dove, 
but as dumb as a kakapo, which is the world's dumbest bird, and as toxic as a black mamba. Not the wisdom of the snake, just the stinking venom of the snake. And let me show you about these animals. You probably didn't even know that thing existed. And this is where my ADD has served me well in preaching. The endless rabbit trails that happen through Wikipedia. I just, you know, of course, I'm like, I want an illustration. What's the dumbest bird in the world? Uh, like all the weirdest animals in the world, this is from down south, not Australia, but New Zealand, almost extinct. It's the largest flightless parrot who was almost hunted to extinction because of how dumb it is. Its inability to hide, it just is like, it's, it doesn't blend into anything. It doesn't, it can't fly, it can't get away. And, and it's a night, it's a night bird. So the, so people would, would hunt them in the evening and almost wipe them out. And now there's a small handful of these weird, like very weird looking birds, but which I kind of want, um, that lives on a little island off the coast of New Zealand to keep them from going extinct. Uh, we, this is not, we want the innocence of a dove, not stupidity. But the, the problem is, is that the black mamba is, is the second most venomous serpent in the world, right? And this strike, this thing, look at that thing. It's, it's horrible. You probably, some of you probably really don't even, like my wife with rats, like she just can't even look at pictures. It gets upset. This thing is not something you want to, to play with. And we think of the serpent in terms of its danger, but Jesus is using the illustration in terms of its, of its cunningness, its efficiency, its single-mindedness. And, and, and this is something that I think is, is important for us to understand because I think that what we have learned in our current climate is that we have stopped being wise, that we don't understand the importance of critical thinking, but we are masters of being critical. And, and I think we don't understand what it means to be grace-filled. The graciousness, he says, you, I am sending you out as sheep. That means that the sheep is always a sacrificial animal, that the purpose of the church is that our lives would be laid down as sacrifices for, for God and for others. And the problem is, is because we have aped and mimicked the ways of the, of the world, the church now has become a place for self-discovery. And it shouldn't be surprising that people are walking away. Because I don't know about you, but I have gone on too many dead-end trips into, into self-knowledge, only to come up barely surviving the journey. And you can't gaze long into your own soul with any kind of honesty and not come out feeling pretty freaked out by what you found in there. And so we are the masters of illusion. We are the masters of escape. And what we have created in our society is, is a, is the joy of ignorance. What I don't know won't kill me, but it does. And the thing is, is that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, which tells us something beautiful about God. 
His first proclamation is not judgment, it's forgiveness. But that forgiveness carries with it a judgment by the very nature that he is insinuating that our ignorance is not innocence. There's things that need to be forgiven. And that is a powerful reality. So let's consider the serpent's wisdom. In Genesis 3, verse 1, we're told that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And we're told that, that this serpent spoke to our first parents, specifically to Eve. And in the garden, he questioned God's authority. And he questioned the interpretation of the things that God had told our first parents. In, in other words, the serpent's primary focus through the mastery of deception was to draw our first parents to a conclusion that was built on a partial truth. You will know things that will make you like God. The partial truth is this, is that it is true that they would be defining for themselves right and wrong, which would make them their own gods, but what he didn't tell them is that those aren't real gods. That that great lie is the lie that has continued to be perpetuated ever since this grand narrative from the garden, which is deception came. Our first parents saw the fruit and saw that it was pleasant and desirable for food. They ate of it and they became immediately aware of their own nakedness and became ashamed. The gaze went from God and each other to within themselves, and they lost God and each other. And what they found once they were isolated, and I, I actually, this is a great illustration I really wanted to use in the book, because, you know, when Portland has naked bike rides, it's hard not to find yourself being forced to, to enter back into sins that are already forgiven by the fact that you stood and gazed at it because you could not look away. But nothing is more, um, is more just when I feel sad and I want to just a good interior laugh at another's expense, is I remind myself um, of the time I was riding my motorcycle down the street on 12th Avenue um, and I'd gotten stuck in a group of naked cyclists uh, who mocked me for being on a motorcycle, clothed. And, uh, and, and then they all took off. Ha ha, you're dumb, you're clothed, you're on a motorcycle, which is so much faster than their dumb bikes. And then, um, and then I'm driving, and there's some poor girl, just naked, trying to fix a flat tire all by herself. Not so fun anymore. Immediately weird. Like, before it's like a, you can't see the forest through the trees, you know, like it's, it's just, it's all of it. It's just like, wow, that's crazy, sensory overload. But now it's like, oh my, that is so sad. That is like, so you, and she was fire engine red in the face. And once again, I couldn't look away, not because she was naked, just because I felt so bad. And I actually had the desire to stop and help her fix her tire, but I couldn't have done it. I could, she left me with no choice but to just rip by her laughing and praying that she didn't go to Dorfhope. <laughs> or that she would come, actually. And so I could tell her, I'm sorry. If that was you, I'm sorry. It was me on the motorcycle that burned by you, cackling. Um, and I want to thank you, because it was a hard day that day. Um, 
But I think that this, this reality, it's, it, it, it actually does speak to the nature of the shame that we feel when we're isolated, when we're all exposed, and all we have is ourselves. Of course the outcome's gonna be hiding. Of course the outcome is gonna be going, going further in. And honestly, one, part of what I shared with you guys last week about the season that I just came through over the Christmas break and just hitting a wall is the nature by which we can lose ourselves even in the things that we do for God in a way that we lose God in the, in the process and lose one another. Because I can say I love Jesus all day long, which I do, but what he shows me is that the authenticity and the depth or the, the reality of that love is, is manifested and demonstrated in how I pour myself out for you. And, and it isn't surprising that I began to feel like I was losing Jesus as I was losing grip of the responsibility to be in relationship with others. And that the more isolated I felt and the more panic I felt and the more distressed I felt, the less I was comfortable coming out of the hiding until just last Sunday and then I just did. And it's very freeing and thank you. If it scared you, I'm sorry. But the fact is, is this is why we have to continue to press into a radical confession because it reminds us that everything that needs to be done has already been done in Jesus. That when we confess our sins, we're not, con we're not asking him to forgive us for something that isn't yet forgiven. We are accepting the forgiveness that already is, the proclaiming it keeps us from becoming the, the tools of a devil who wants, to, wants us to believe that we're not forgiven. We're claiming a reality that's already ours. And so I think that this, this serpent's wisdom is, is, is this, is that the devil's desire is for us to continue to have us function as our own gods. But how does that speak to the wisdom of the serpent? What am I supposed to get from that, that Jesus is telling me there's something there that I'm supposed to be like? This is an interesting thing. What is the wisdom of the serpent? Because that kind of wisdom has led to too much heartache. So is that what Jesus is saying? No. Look at Jeremiah 8, 17. For behold, I'm sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. Once again, deadly they can't be charmed. They're always dangerous. What is the wisdom there that we are supposed to draw from as believers? What is Jesus getting at when he tells us to be wise as serpents? Or what about this in Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 through 10? And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down that accuses them day and night before our God. Okay. These three passages tell us the wisdom that we should be drawing from the serpent. It's actually very similar to the innocence of the dove. Satan's cunningness, which we are supposed to actually manifest, Jesus says, we should be as wise as serpents, is it's through the looking glass. It's we should be giving God 
the devotion and the absolute unwavering tenacity that Satan gives to bringing God's kingdom down. You see, what I see in the devil is something that makes me ashamed because he is a true essentialist. <laughs> he isn't distracted by the millions of voices that are vying for our affection. He's too busy ruling them with a single-minded focus on one thing and one thing alone. To hurt, to kill, to bring death and to bring it abundantly. And to do that and to do the kind of damage that the dominion of darkness has done throughout history requires a single-minded, perfectly tuned wisdom on how to achieve that very thing. And he has come close. And so when Jesus is saying to his disciples, like, look at the kingdom of darkness. It's not distracted by the things that you're distracted by. It understands its mission, and it has fully given itself to that mission without any wavering. And I believe that part of what Jesus is saying is that we cannot actually engage intelligently as believers when we refuse to understand the ways that this very enemy, in which he said there's things that can be learned from this enemy, not what he believes, but how he achieves what he believes, which is his devotion to that thing which I think Jesus is once again showing his disciples to their shame the nature of our mixture and how easy it is for us to drift from what it is that we're to be given to because our first parent's sin was that very thing. It wasn't giving themselves in full 100% surrender to God. They decided to be their own gods and to find for themselves what is right and what is wrong. And we are still feeling the ramifications of that today. I think even more is that the, if we applied the kind of tenacity to our pursuit of Jesus, to our living as, as living sacrifices for God and for others, with the same kind of tenacity that the dominions of darkness are bent, hell-bent on destroying it, we would understand that the victory is already ours. But Satan's great deception is this is to keep us naive to his plans and also ignorant of God's grace. And in doing so, what happens is that we become a people that are easy prey, easily picked off. I have thought about the troubling increase of suicide in our world and why I believe, unfortunately, it will continue. And I think that we, this is something that has just been frustrating me, and I'm going to take next week to go a little further with this because I think that there are some basic ideologies that have shaped this moment, but we are so ignorant of these ideologies because we don't feel like they're relevant when they actually are the very things that define the ground that you walk on. There are philosophies. We say philosophies, you know, for the empty-headed you know, professor to argue about questions that can't be answered. Let me tell you, ideas are power, and they have very much shaped this moment. And yet we live in a time where history is literally just, we're just pretending like we can take 2,000 years of history and just act like it doesn't matter. Erase it. 
that we can get rid of truth because everything is relative and truth is, is subjective based upon your personal experience. And actually, it is not history or truth that is the foundation of human existence any longer. It is the personal narrative. Your experience is the most important thing. And there are ideologies. I'll list a few of them. I, I actually say that the seven heads um, found on the beast that carries the great, the, the woman of destruction, Babylon, and Revelation. And when we think about things like existentialism, nihilism, solipsism, when we think about idealism, when we think about humanism and secularism, I mean, I could just go on and on. All of those words are connected to things that affect how you live. And because we don't actually know how to define them, we don't know how to battle them. And yet we can feel that something's wrong. And yet this is the thing is that what Paul is saying to the Roman church is not be, be innocent in terms of evil. That is, turn your head away from the, the, the wiles of the devil. Don't concern yourself with that. This is one of the problems in the churches. We don't know how to combat and our stance against the devil is not us going out and fighting demons. Our stance against the devil is learning how to understand who we are in Christ. It's about discovering in all of its beauty and glory what our identity is. Because everything is driven by identity today in our world. The question is, is what identifies you? What is, where is your loyalty? Where is your devotion? Because if you're like me, it waffles between total devotion to Jesus, my family, the church, but it also can quickly, because of how powerful these voices are and these ideologies, go to an absolute kind of fight or flight devotion to protecting my own fragile ego that supposedly died with Jesus. <laughs> but somehow has a freakishly uncanny ability to raise from the dead at any given moment, which is why we so desperately need community and why we need to have understanding of the, of the systems that are at play because we don't know how to actually function any longer as Christians in a world that is so fully working against us. I think of, a, um, of this great statement by Jacques Ellul who said, Christians cannot consider themselves pure in comparison with others or declare themselves unaffected by the world's sin. A major fact of our civilization is that sin is becoming more and more collective. And each individual person is constrained to participate in it. He wrote that before the smartphone. He had no idea. He wrote that in 1948. What a weirdo. To be able to see, that's, that's a prophet. That is a prophetic voice. He said, modern people no longer enter into conflict with facts. Wow. He wrote that in 1948. How true, and even more so now. And I think that this is, this is the, the thing that we need to understand is that this call for us to be as wise as serpents is, to, is we can take what is a, a natural desire of the human heart to be driven towards something that brings meaning 
for Satan, the only thing that gives him meaning is the nothingness that he brings, which is a contradiction and a paradox all in itself. But he is fully devoted to a mission of death. And that devotion has made him quite effective throughout human history. But we are called to be on a mission to bring this reality of Jesus to others, which we cannot do that for others without it also impacting and changing and transforming us and giving us hope in the midst of a world that feels hopeless often, that feels impossible. Life is impossible. I was reading the philosophy and an overview. I love those little Oxford short introduction books. If you guys want to great, like you want to read, but you don't want to go like thousands of pages into academic language that you can't make heads or tails, that Oxford does these wonderful little slim volumes that are concise overviews written by academics in almost every subject imaginable. And I was reading the short overview of the great philosopher Schopenhauer, who was known for his uh, what is called a, a philosophy of pessimism, really, which is that you cannot pan back and look at the world and human existence without seeing it for what it is, suffering. <laughs> and how do we combat suffering and what drives us? And he calls it the will to life. And the absurdity of the will to life is that it's, it's often driven by the desire for love. And what's funny is he's, everything he's saying is stuff that the Bible says. It's just he doesn't ever pin it on Jesus. And so it stays in a place of optimism or I mean, excuse me, in a place of pessimism, and he approaches it more like the Buddha, you know, trying to just accept in his isolation that inward, inward journey to come to terms with the inescapable reality of suffering. Jesus doesn't call us to take that journey in. He calls us to trust in him who has dealt with our suffering, and he, we don't need an explanation for it because we know he understand it, understands it and it will not have the last word. And I think that this is the difference, is that it's a, it's, a, it's a faith that's meant to draw us out of ourselves, not push us inward. The dove's innocence is another one that is interesting. In Genesis 8-11, we're told in the ark when Noah and his family were waiting for the waters to begin to decline, the hope that they could actually get off that boat. And what happens, a dove is sent out and it says, and the dove came back to him in the evening and behold, in her mouth was freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subdied, um, subsided from the earth. And you can see the dove is always that picture of the dove with the, with the olive branch in its mouth is a, is a picture of peace. It's, it, was, it was symbolic of it. It's, it's the harbinger. It's the, it's, the, it's the coming tranquility, the promise that God would never flood the earth again. It, it became a picture of of. Of, of hope and, and peace. And I love that Jesus uses this word innocence, um, be as innocent as doves. But the actual Greek word, um, it literally means, um, it pertains to being without, one of my favorite words that I use, without mixture. Now, you might immediately ask, are you telling us that you're a false teacher? Because I don't think there's ever been a week that you haven't told us that we are consistently with mixture. I will continue to tell you that until I am with you in our perfected heavenly bodies without mixture. But right now, that is the reality. So how are we to be pure without mixture if mixture is the only thing that we can know in this world? 
And, and I'm going to answer that question in, in, in a second. But the, the picture of the dove is that of, of peace. Look at Leviticus 1.14. It's not just a picture of coming peace or, or that purity or hope, but it's also a picture of sacrifice. And I think that this is the part of the innocence of the dove is to maintain that, that, that position that Paul talks about in Romans 12 to present ourselves each day as a living sacrifice. And it says, if his offering um, to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. Uh, it says verse 15. Verse 15 is not there. Verse 15 says you shall wring its neck and put the blood on the altar. So the bird, it's not a, you know, it's not like Noah taking the, the olive branch out of its mouth and then he flies out the next time and doesn't come back. These birds uh, die, die a, a death as a, as a propitiation, as, a, as an offering, a, an atoning offering. They're, they're, they are meant to bring, bring peace between the people of God um, and God himself. And, and here we have this burnt offering that is, that is meant to be a part of the, the, that act of worship. Worship by its very nature is a surrender. It is a sacrifice. And I think that the innocence of the dove is, is speaking to that spirit of consistent worship, uh, the, the spirit of, of maintaining the hope of th- things to come because it says whoever has this hope in them, the hope of seeing Jesus face to face in 1 John, will be purified. That word, once again, just as he is pure. Again, in Luke 3.22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a bodily form like a dove. The picture of the innocence, the purity, the holiness of, of the spirit is pictured in the, in the bodily form of a dove. And I think that this is one of those challenging things because when Jesus says, hey, be wise as serpents, which means be aware, be focused, be attentive, is essentially what Jesus is saying. Be attentive to the world that you live in because the kingdom of God is not seen by the world and it can be missed by the people of the kingdom themselves if we don't understand how to remove the illusions and the distractions. It also, I think, speaks to that. Be single-minded in your focus upon the king which means you have to know how to wisely engage with the world. You can't escape from it. But with the dove, it's like, and at the same time, be in the world, but don't be of it. Maintain a purity of heart. And there's the catch, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but when I read a phrase like, be holy, in Scripture, it feels suspiciously like a cloaked way of being told to try harder. And I I just want you to know that I'm not challenging the authority of Scripture. I'm just challenging the wrong interpretation. And I'm also not saying that we're not to do nothing. I'm just saying that often the things that we do to achieve the holiness we do not understand often amounts to nothing. Because the innocence of the dove is not something that we can achieve in our own strength. And this brings me to the close, which is that we need to understand the wisdom of God and the innocence of God. Not the wisdom of the serpent, but the wisdom of God and the innocence of God. The wisdom of God is Jesus working in the foolish and the weak. Look what it says here. Here's the upside down kingdom. For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. So he's not looking for smarties. Anything, we should be a little leery. And I'm not, listen, I'm not trying to be like Popot here, okay? I'm not saying intellectuals should be destroyed and wiped off the face of the planet because they run a threat to my ability to control you people. But I am saying is that we give a lot of kudos to intelligence when every intelligent discovery that has moved us into our incredible technological age has also brought with it unbelievable destruction. There is no advancement that doesn't have an unbelievable underbelly because the wisdom of man will always be foolishness to God because when it's disconnected from God, it cannot be trusted. Fallen world, fallen minds, which means even our teachers of the word that are given authority in the churches uh, as, as we function as a people is still to be tested is still to be, and this is part of the problem, is how often do you take what I say and actually say, do I even believe what he said? Where's he getting his information? I get very few emails. In the, and I don't know if that just means, I'm not questioning what you said because I've never understood anything you said. I just keep coming back because I keep thinking someday it's going to make sense. <laughs> I don't know if that's the case. I doubt it. Usually people are going to give up long before 13 years. But I will say that, that there, is an, there is a reluctance to question people we admire. There's a reluctance to learn for ourselves. We're lazy. We're often lazy. We, just, we want someone else to just tell us what to do. But that is how you come to things like World War II. Just, but I forgot that we have forgotten history, and so we can't really talk intelligently about those things. And so we have to, we have to consistently ask the question, what are we doing to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is so that we can test the spirits, even test one another, because every one of us will be heretics somewhere. And we need to understand that. There is no theologian out there that gets it all right. I don't follow any, people are like, what do you think of so-and-so? I'm like, I like him, but I, can I have a problem with this? What about this person? I, yeah, it's great. I think she's awesome on this, but I kind of have an issue with this. I guarantee that I have those same, just like everybody that has ever lived, uh, with the exception of Jesus himself, fundamental holes in the way that I view doctrine. This is why we need the body together to protect ourselves, and we need to be all engaged by the illumination of the spirit, not intellectual capacity. It doesn't matter how stinking smart anyone is, if they don't have the spirit of God, they are blind to his revelation, period. And it says, not many are powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is law and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And then look what he says. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. That two-letter word, in, is the most important word in the New Testament. It's a preposition that places us in something and not just something in someone. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ, in the beloved, him in us. Abide in me and I in you. Without me, you can do nothing. 
This is the power of the gospel. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. The whole reason God came was not just to get us out of hell, to put us into heaven, but to get himself out of heaven back into the hearts of men and women where he has always desired to reign and rule and commune intimately with each of us. The beauty of the gospel is Christ is the wisdom of God. We're not seeking knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. We are looking for relational knowledge, a knowledge that brings us into contact with the living God. And his wisdom, his presence, and the illumination of the Spirit helps us engage in the lies of this world because we know the voice of our Savior so well we can tell a counterfeit when we hear it. That's why I don't trust any conversation about God if it doesn't include the name of Jesus. I actually flunked a kid at E. Cola Bible College. Um, I, I used flunked very loosely. I was asked to grade a paper that I gave 50 students. And maybe it was because I was given the power to grade papers um, that I just felt like somebody needed to be the class scapegoat. And there was a a girl in the class that gave a whole bunch of answers that were all built upon trying harder, doing more, working harder, proving. I just asked, what's the supreme goal of the Christian life? And it was like she said everything but the answer. And she didn't even refer to God as Jesus. She just referred to him as Yahweh. And I'm like, why are you using the name that no one actually knows how to truly say? The name of of the God of Old, Old Testament, because it says that God has at various times spoken in this way. Yes, he is Yahweh. It's true. But there is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved, and that is Jesus. And there is no God behind the back of Jesus. No, no hidden God. Jesus is not separate. He must be continued to be put forth. And it's not the name of Yahweh that offends people. It's the name of Jesus that offends. Because there's power in it. Because God, in his own pleasure gave his son and that's why it says he has at various times spoken through the scriptures and through the prophets and through his people but in these last days the final word is Jesus so when people talk about the Holy Spirit and that they don't talk about Jesus it triggers me and I don't like to use the word trigger but there's something about it it was one of the issues I had when I was a worship um, leader and assigned artist out touring with the bands like David Crowder and I mean and I loved, I loved Chowderhead. Like, I liked him. Um, and, and all of these different Christian arts, but it was fascinating to me how little worship music had the name of Jesus in it. And I think that it speaks to a, a, a movement. All heresy in the Christian church has always been through the diminishment of the deity of Christ. All of it. It's always connected to some wrong thinking about who Jesus is. That's why it's the supreme question and why it must be continued to be the anchor, the central tenet, because the Holy Spirit himself will always redirect your attention back to Jesus. For he has come to bring to remembrance the things that he has said, Jesus said himself. He is the spirit of truth who will guide us into all truth. Our yieldedness to the spirit will always lead us to the foot of the cross, is what I'm trying to say, friends. And here's the thing, the wisdom of God is revealed through the, what is foolishness to men. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, it is the wisdom and the power of God to salvation. So finally, the perfection of God 
is Jesus, our innocence. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said in Matthew 5, um, verse 8, for they shall see God. You, therefore, verse 48, the verse that drove me to Christ, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What? That can't be what it means. And yet it is, but we also know it's impossible, and that's the point. The impossible possibility is the perfection of Christ himself in us. Our purity is not moral perfection. Our purity is not our ability to cross our T's and dot our I's and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and be the most awesome self you could ever be and so that you can hold it, hold it up to God. Look how savable I am, Jesus. Our perfection is our total yieldedness to his perfection. It's his perfection working in our mixture, not the removal of the mixture. It's his perfection saving through our mixture, not the eradication of all that is wrong because it's already all been conquered, but it's still a reality in our world. Soon, the God of peace will crush Satan under his feet. But as of right now, he's still devouring a lot of people. Math, or Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice, a single offering for all time. It transcends past, present, future. It goes all directions. And yet it speaks of a happening in time, which is sanctification, not a once and for all act, but a lifelong process that is continually affected by that once and for all act. Our sanctification is our continual surrender to that once and for all act, which is why we must come to the cross. Our innocence is not our ability to be awesome Christians. Our innocence, as well as our wisdom, is our willingness to abide in Christ. So I want to just close with this illustration because I think it'll be helpful. A long time ago, I gave a story um, that's actually in the book about my one year of horseback riding. And I, I had a horse when I was in sixth grade. His name was Silfer, not Silver, Silfer. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, given by the owner before my stepdad got it. But my mom married my stepdad and I got a horse. And I was like a kid like singing and breakdancing. Definitely not a farm boy, but I learned how to ride that horse and I was pretty fearless. And I rode every single day. I was the only one that rode him. Rode every day for a whole year until April of 1985, I was on bareback behind my girlfriend at the time, very innocent, never kissed her. She did punch me in the stomach and make me cry once, because um, that's what you do as 11-year-olds. Uh, and, uh, and we're riding bareback on a retired racehorse, and she had been riding her whole life. And I said, let's see how fast she can go. And she takes off running, and we couldn't get the horse to stop. Long story short, turned a corner like 90 degrees, threw Nikki and I off the horse, probably at about 35 miles an hour. Nikki, being an experienced rider, tucked into a little ball, had some bumps and bruises. I went into an upside down Christ pose and skid across the road on the back of my head, being covered so completely in blood that I looked like a tempted murder victim, waving down a car by which a kind cowboy who had the voice of Sam Elliott said, get in the car, son, looks like you need to go to the doctor, try not to get any blood on my seat, boy, um, which he literally said that. And then having the most insane concussion, stitches, the back of my head shaved, which all the kids made fun of me for, which already added to the brutality of my childhood, and it abruptly ended my horseback riding. 
life. So there's this old cowboy saying. One of them you know. If you, if you fall off your horse, you got to what? Get back in the saddle. They say that about motorcycles too, but it's really, the motorcycle is not a horse. <laughs> and motorcycles are dangerous. I would argue horses are way more dangerous because they're living creatures with their own brains who have the ability to kick you to death. If you've ever been bit by a horse, it's the worst thing ever. Think of a child's bite and then amplify it if that child was a giant <laughs> with teeth. <laughs> Luckily, our kids bite us most when they don't have teeth, but, or at least not a lot of them. Um, but I, 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 I think about this, this writing. I couldn't get back in the saddle. And I was thinking about this other famous cowboy, great Texan parable. You know, there ain't a horse that can't be rode, nor a cowboy that ain't being throwed. That's the, the parable. Because it's, it speaks of the nature of what a cowboy is. And see, what I've learned is that it's true in terms of riding horses. I wasn't cut out to be a real cowboy. I wrote this in my book. And my fear got the best of me. However, if I was to apply the same concept to ministry, or even to, I could say, to the Christian life, I recognize in a place like Portland, which really is like the Wild West, I might just be a real cowboy. Failure in ministry, failure as a Christian is similar to falling off the horse. I'm not sure if I'm courageous or stupid, but I have gotten back in the saddle more times than I can count. After criticisms, mental breakdowns, sleepless nights, demonic attacks, shingles, complete adrenal crash, the distractions, various attempted escapes, destructive behavior, choosing the influence of all sorts of things, uh, to ease stress rather than the spirit. As I write this, I can say no matter how much I hurt, how unhealthy I can be, even at times unhappy, I just can't seem to get away, nor do I want to from the one who met me 23 years ago and told me I was loved. Who showed me trying and climbing was not the answer, but dying and rising with him. I love him too much to keep him to myself. I just simply cannot. And yes, sometimes I'm a bull in a china shop and my zeal exceeds my gifts. I fall. Sometimes I'm still a, the boy under the bed paralyzed by fear. I fall. Sometimes I get unhealthy and simply don't have the strength to hold on and I fall. But every time I am attempted to stay down, I am reminded of the exhilaration of following him who is the way, the truth, and the life. A real cowboy, like a real Christian, is not defined by any particular giftedness it's just who they are. He will likely have a gun, but he might be a terrible shot. He will always be identifiable by the boots, the hat, the buckle, the denim, and yet might have terrible style. I was gonna actually show examples of that, but I decided not to. He'll always have a horse, friends. There, you've, you're not a cowboy without a horse. But he may not be a great rider, but the one thing he will always do is get back in the saddle. I believe that this is the Christian life. You guys, it's not about being super smart. It's not about being morally perfect. It's about continuing to get up when we stumble off the path and there's a million ways to fall and to continue to stand up and begin again, to get back in the saddle, to follow him who is our wisdom, who is our innocence, to trust him, to give ourselves to him, to live with him, to know him, and to be so enamored with him that that love keeps us from being afraid of what the world cannot ultimately do, which is take us out of the love of Christ, which is an immovable force. He loves you guys. 
Like he loves me, he loves you. And if you've fallen off and you're scared to get back, because that's the thing I'm watching people be afraid to get back in the saddle. And I think it's maybe because they never fell in love with the one who says, I am with you. And yes, there will be tribulation, but I have overcome the world. He loves you. He's with you. The days are dark, but Jesus is glorious and nothing will stop him from the completion of his glorious plan.